Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever hear of the La Tomatina Festival? This happens on the last Wednesday in August in Spain. This is the largest public tomato fight in the world. That's weird. I mean, why would you do this on a Wednesday? And secondly, it seems like an awful waste of food. No one is really sure where this tradition began. We, we think it started in 1945 when there was a brawl in the main square and one of the few weapons available were the tomatoes on carts of the vegetable stands. They do something weird in Denmark, too. If you're 25 years old and it's Valentine's Day and you're single, your family and friends are apparently supposed to throw cinnamon at you. No one really knows why or when this started, but it is a thing, I'm told. And how about this? There's a temple called Sri Sansawar in India. There is a tradition whereby parents who were married at this temple throw their newborn babies from the top of the building. It's a 50-foot drop. The baby is caught by people holding a big cloth below. I'm sure there are reasons for this, but they all escape me. Let's segue to this. Rock music has been around long enough, three-quarters of a century, that we've developed some weird habits and behaviors, things that we do just, um, I don't know, just because. We engage in this behavior or do these things because everyone else is doing it. And if you were to ask around for a reason why, no one would really have a good explanation. You just accept this thing, whatever it is, as part of rock and roll culture. But what if you really, really need to know? What if you just can't take someone's word that this is what's supposed to be done? That's where this program comes in. This is another edition of something I call the Rock Explainer. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another episode of The Rock Explainer. I did a show like this once before where we looked at things like, uh, well, for example, where did the tradition of holding up a lighter at concerts come from? And uh, who was the moron who first inappropriately yelled, free bird, at a gig? And where did the idea of the heavy metal devil horns come from? If you want that, there's a podcast that you can go back and listen to. That program was very popular when it ran on the radio, and the podcast has been downloaded tens of thousands of times. And it resulted in a lot of email from people asking for explanations for other, well, unexplained rock traditions. So, uh, okay, let's let's do this. 
Jeffrey from Western New York is curious about two things. The first is the adoption of long hair for men in the world of rock. How did that start with white male musicians and music fans? Actually, this goes back a lot longer than the rock era. Hair length on men has gone in cycles for hundreds and hundreds of years. Long hair in musicians has gone together for centuries. The men of ancient Greece could be long hairs, and no one seemed to mind. But periodically, long hair on men went out of style, prompting criticism of this stylistic choice. For example, in 1842, the London Saturday Journal in the UK wrote this, Many vagrants are musicians, but it does not follow that all musicians are vagrants. It is expected of musicians nowadays to wear long hair as a necessary appendage to their talent. That's followed by a long critique of how annoying and dumb the long hair male musician is. Now, that's a bit weird because not that much earlier, it was completely fashionable for the greatest classical musicians in the world to wear their hair long. Beethoven, Mozart, they both wore their hair long. So did all their contemporaries and the people that followed them. Fast forward to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Short hair was culturally enforced in the West. White men who didn't keep things trim were considered everything from effeminate to subversive to unhygienic. Having long hair as a guy was just something you didn't do. But then along came rock and roll in the 1950s. Musicians of all stripes tend to be ahead of the societal curve. And as rock was supposed to be rebellious in a way to express personal freedom, things went beyond just the music and into fashion. And that meant new styles of dress and new ways for guys to wear their hair. Long hair was seen as one of the most obvious ways of signaling your membership in the counterculture of the 1960s. When the Beatles showed up with their mop tops, that was just the start. Men's hair got longer and longer throughout the 60s. And when there was a societal pushback, long-haired dudes not only stuck to their guns, but dug it even further. And men's hair just kept getting longer. Peak length came sometime in the 1970s, before punk brought back short haircuts. Now to punks, long hair belonged on hippies, those weirdos who failed with their message of peace and love back in the 1960s. So short hair became a way of identifying with the tribe of punk rock. All right, we're still talking about hair. Things bifurcated pretty severely in the middle 1970s. Long hair became standard in some quarters. Hard rock and metal often required it. That's a tradition that continues today. But this, unfortunately, gave us the mullet. Now, according to people who study these things, say that the origins of the mullet can be found in ancient Assyria, Egypt, and Greece. Indigenous populations were known to favor this style, considering the mullet to be a traditional look. When white missionaries intruded on the land of the Nez Perce nation of the Pacific Northwest, they took note of their mullets and demanded that they adopt something more civilized. Mullets were more or less invisible until the late 1960s when hard rock adopted the look. When David Bowie's debut of the Ziggy Stardust character gave it a jumpstart, the mullet was seen as radical and scary and shocking. And from there, it spread across society and shows no sign of ever disappearing. And it was the Beastie Boys who apparently gave this business-in-front, party-in-the-back hairstyle its name. At least that's what the Oxford English Dictionary says. There was a six-page article in their Grand Royal magazine on the subject in 1995. 
But before that, there was a song called Mullet Head that appeared as a bonus track on the Japanese version of Ill Communication. Let's listen. Since we're talking about the human head, let's switch to the whole issue of headbanging. This is where people, again, mostly dudes, violently shake their head in time with some very heavy music. This is not a new thing. If we go back into music history, a similar activity was associated with traditional Islamic music in the Sufi tradition. Qawwali music from India and Iran has also employed headbanging movements. Both can be traced back centuries and are related to worshippers falling into trance-like states where they bang their heads. Okay, but what about the origins of modern rock-based headbanging? It's kind of tough. The story might begin in the 1950s during Jerry Lee Lewis shows. The curls on his head would come loose and fall into his face. He had to continuously flip them back so he could see what he was doing. This became something of a signature move to some fans who then started imitating him. We might point to a 1969 North American tour by Led Zeppelin. Between January 22nd and January 25th, the band played a venue called the Boston Tea Party, and fans down front were seen banging their heads on the stage in time with the music. A year later, Zeppelin was back in London, and it happened again. The front row was banging its collective head on the stage. Moving deeper into 1970, there's video evidence of both Ozzy Osbourne and Geezer Butler headbanging during a Black Sabbath gig in Paris. If you went to an ACDC show in the late 1970s, you would have seen guitarist Angus Young banging his head. And then, if you had talked to Lemmy, he would say that the term headbanging was derived from the name of his band. That would work out to motorhead banging. And some of their songs are as fast as 200 beats a minute, which really plays hell on the neck. Whatever the case, Everyone was banging their heads by the time the 80s began, and people had begun to hurt themselves. Doctors started noting injuries from strained necks to whiplash to ruined cardioid arteries to even neck fractures. I ran across some medical literature where a 50-year-old German man presented to doctors with a headache that kept getting worse. They gave him a CAT scan, and they found a big subdural hematoma. Doctors drilled into his skull, removed the clot, and he was fine. But what caused it? He'd been to a Motorhead show a month earlier and had been enthusiastically banging his head. Terry Balsamo can relate. While playing guitar for Evanescence, he had a stroke. Doctors think it might have been related to his head banging. Tom Araya of Slayer started having problems with his upper spine. It got so bad that he had to undergo spinal fusion therapy. The cause? Head banging. Megadeth's Dave Mustaine says his spinal stenosis was caused by years of banging his head. And let's spare a thought for Jonathan Davis of Corn, who basically headbanged for a living. In 2006, he noticed purple blotches on the underside of his legs. Then that bruising started to spread. Okay, better call the doctor. It turned out he had a condition called immune thrombocytopenic purpura, a blood clotting disorder. He caught it just in time. And according to doctors, had he continued to headbang on stage, he could have had a brain hemorrhage and died right there.
More explanations for this rock explainer coming up. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This is another edition of the Rock Explainer, a program where I try to explain why we do things in the context of rock and roll culture. And here's another question. This comes from a listener named Alistair. The question I have is a two-parter about the encore. How did that get started? And more importantly, are they still necessary? Why do we all stand clapping at the end of the main set, knowing full well that the band is coming back out? What's the point of this? Excellent question. Encores have sometimes really annoyed me. Other times I'm okay with it. It all depends on the gig. But why do we have encores in the first place? This is a tradition that goes back to at least the 18th century. Back then, there was no recorded music, of course. The only way you could hear your favorite music was to wait for an opportunity to go someplace where someone would perform it for you. Once a performance was over, the audience would shout, Encore! Which, of course, is French for again. Others would yell, Un autre, or one other. In Italy, people yelled, Ancora! This was a demand by the audience and the performer's wealthy patrons to play the most popular songs again. And this didn't happen just at the end of the gig. Sometimes shouts of encore would encourage the orchestra to play a popular part of a piece right there and then. Let's, let's just back up. An example of the old-style encore would be the premiere of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. This happened on May 1st, 1786 at the Berg Theater in Vienna. The audience loved it so much that the orchestra was obliged to play certain portions and movements of that opera again and again. And by the time everybody went home, the production had gone on for twice as long as intended. All encores. Shouts of encore weren't always appreciated, though. At one point, many European opera houses banned encores, saying that they were too disruptive. Emperor Joseph II of Austria, a big Mozart fan, was one of the first to make such a ruling. Encores were then banned. They were also banned in Italy, and they were banned in Germany. As time went on, cries of encore became something you only heard at, shall we say, less prestigious performances. By 1900, the idea of an encore was sniffed upon as uncouth. When we get to dance halls and vaudeville, the same thing happened. You couldn't hear songs any other way than to see them live. And when someone performed a popular song of the day on stage and people loved it, they would yell, encore, and that performer would have to perform the song again, and sometimes again, and again, and again. When rock came along in the 50s and 60s, the tradition was revived. At the end of a set, artists would leave the stage only to return to play a few more minutes. Why? Well, maybe because it was something the sophisticated types with opera and classical music refused to do any longer perhaps because it was a spontaneous request from an excited audience who didn't want the show to be over. And it probably had something to do with the rise of Broadway productions. Plays and musicals that were well-received often had the audience calling the actors back on stage after everything was over to take an extra bow. So it's not a stretch to say that the tradition bled over into the world of rock. 
Elvis Presley refused to do encores, hence the famous Elvis has left the building announcement, designed to clear out fans who wanted more. Elvis Costello wasn't a big fan and sometimes had his sound guy blare loud music into the theater as a signal that everybody should just go home. The Beatles never played encores. They couldn't. The crowds were so crazy that they played their set and escaped in a waiting car. But eventually, the idea of an encore caught on. Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, and other big bands of the 1970s were only too happy to play this game. And then there's Bruce Springsteen. Even after playing for three or four hours, he'd stagger back on stage to play one more song time and time again. The Cure has been known to leave the stage and return up to five times. There was a time when Prince played seven. And yes, in some cases, it is the ego of the artist that drives the multiple encores. They need that extra validation. Other times, it's all part of the show. After a long set, the band departs the stage for a quick break so they can return to play their biggest hits and end the gig on a high note. And if you'll notice, many encore performances come with special lighting and effects, showing everyone that they plan to do this all along. Still, not every artist does an encore. Sometimes you just got to leave the crowd wanting more. Peter Gabriel famously ended his set with Biko, his tribute to South African activist Stephen Biko, who was killed in police custody in 1977. Gabriel started the song, and then, one by one, everyone leaves the stage until it's just the audience singing. It's really one of the most powerful things I've ever seen anyone do at a concert. This is a recording from a performance in Toronto on July 4th, 2003. Amazing to see live, Peter Gabriel's famous Biko encore. Next up is a question from Marcel. Who came up with the idea of stage diving? Okay, there are two types of stage diving. The first is when the performer leaps off the stage and into the crowd. The second is when a member of the audience climbs up on stage and then dives back into the crowd. Let's start with dives taken by the performer. There is some debate over who did this first. It might have been Jim Morrison of The Doors sometime between 1967 and 1969. He did it, but no one has ever documented too much about that. Then came Iggy Pop. He was definitely stage diving by 1969 and made it a regular thing. When it comes to crowd participation stage diving, the first documented evidence of that was a Rolling Stone show in the Netherlands on August 8, 1964. Fans were said to have jumped on stage and jumped back off. That's so long ago, we didn't even call it stage diving. But over the years, this became the thing to do at some shows, especially with metal and punk artists. People have been seriously injured and have even died as a result of either diving or having someone fall on top of them. Here's an example. On November 13th, 1997, Everclear was playing a show in Boston in a place called The Paradise, and things were going great. And yes, there was plenty of stage diving. That's what we did in the 90s. But at one point, two members of the New England Patriots, quarterback Drew Bledsoe, backup quarterback Scott Zolak, and lineman Max Lane, who weighed 305 pounds, climbed up on stage. Lane dove. He landed on 23-year-old Tamika Messier, crushing her. She suffered injuries to her neck, shoulders, and arms. Two herniated discs were removed, and three vertebrae had to be fused together. On December 10th, she filed a lawsuit against both the football players, the club, and the band. In the end, she received $1.2 million for her pain and suffering. We can lift the side of the ocean. 
I have a little more explaining to do in just a moment. We'll get into Mosh Pits, the music we hear before a show, and the story behind one of the most annoying internet things ever. There are a few more things I want to cover on this edition of the Rock Explainer. Mosh Pits, for one. I had a number of emails asking where Mosh Pits came from. They are the descendants of groups of British punks doing a dance called the Pogo. Basically, it involved jumping up and down in place and probably started because so many early punk shows didn't have a stage. So if you were in the crowd, you had to keep jumping up and down to see over everyone in front of you. As the music got more aggressive, so did the pogoing with people banging into each other. This evolved into something called slam dancing, which is just like it sounds. As American hardcore took off, things got even more intense. People, and almost always guys, would get close to the stage and basically lose their minds. This may have been first seen with the Orange County punks in the late 1970s. Black Flag, Fear, bands like that, playing at clubs like the Cuckoo's Nest in Costa Mesa, which has gone down in history as the birthplace of slam dancing. I also like the theory that involved the DC band Bad Brains. They originally encouraged fans to mash, which is their word derived from the Jamaican phrase mash it up, against each other during their shows. But that mutated into mosh because singer HR had a Jamaican accent and he pronounced mash as mosh. So mosh it was. Since then, moshing has taken on a variety of forms. Circle pits, walls of death, which is as dangerous as it sounds, hardcore dancing, and something even called crowd killing. And yes, many people have been hurt or even killed moshing. Many bands have come out against it. In fact, here's the band Consolidated with their anti-mosh track, The Men's Movement. San Francisco's ultra-left-wing band Consolidated, incorporating comments from the audience about moshing in a song called The Men's Movement. All right, another question. This is from Jake. As a lifelong music lover, I've been to countless concerts from small clubs to stadium shows. I've always been curious about the music that's played before and between the acts that are performing. Who picks that? Is it the artists who are performing that particular show? Those in charge of the venue? Is it a way to introduce new music to those in attendance? Any insights you might have would be appreciated. You're talking about what some people refer to as PA music or pre-show music. And there's no hard and fast rule about what this music should consist of. Sometimes it's the choice of the venue. Sometimes it's the choice of whoever's running the PA because, well, maybe they need a way to tweak the sound before the band comes out. Sometimes it's the gig's sound designer. Pre-show music may be part of the vibe that the person is trying to create for the entire performance. And sometimes it's the artist who wants to expose the audience to music that they like. Whatever the case, watch this trick. As the clock ticks towards showtime, the person at the soundboard will slowly increase the volume of the PA music as a way of turning up the energy in the venue. When you 2 went on tour years ago, you knew that they were about to come on because they and their sound people chose this song specifically to be the final thing that their audience heard before they walked on stage. And it was played at a volume significantly higher than any other song that had come before. I have one last question, and this came from several listeners. Who is the person who is responsible 
for the Rickroll. You think you're clicking on a link that leads to something interesting, and instead you're sent to the video for Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. This little bait and switch seems to date back to the 4chan message board in 2006. Clicking on an interesting link led to something involving a duck. Someone had wrote a script that changed all instances of the word egg to duck. Ergo, egg roll became duck roll. And that was so amusing that some user constructed an image of a duck on wooden wheels. Now, that image was funny enough for 4chan users to use it in a bait-and-switch prank. You thought you were clicking on a link for something cool, but instead you got this duck on wheels, and this became known as duck rolling. By the following April Fool's Day, duck rolling had caught on. But then in May 2007, we saw the first example of substituting the duck with Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. The link looked like it was going to take you to a trailer for a new edition of Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto 4, but instead, you got this. From there, Rick Rowling just kind of exploded. On April 1st, 2008, April Fool's Day, YouTube thought it would be funny to have every video on its homepage link directly to Never Gonna Give You Up. Rick Astley himself helped it along by unexpectedly emerging from a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade float to sing the song. A live Rickroll. And by the time we got to 2011, Rickrolling was everywhere. The hacktivist group Anonymous used Rickrolling in a battle against Scientology. The U.S. Army used it on Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega in a PSYOPs plan to smoke him out of the Vatican Embassy. Apple Support had a little fun with the video. WikiLeaks did, too, and so did the Foo Fighters, and we'll come back to them. Victims of Rickrolling included ISIS and pro-Brexit campaigners in Britain. Someone has tried to estimate how many people have been Rickrolled since 2008, and the number they came up with was 18 million in the U.S. alone, which seems kind of low, if I'm honest. Rickrolling is not only a viral video movie, it's also a genuine cultural phenomenon. It's been used by the White House in TV shows, movies, video games, Major League Baseball, Zoom meetings during the pandemic, stealth QR codes, and more. Now, Rick Astley had nothing to do with this. He first found out about the meme when a friend Rickrolled him. And even though the video has been viewed over a billion times, Rick hasn't made much money from it. Two reasons. First of all, he didn't write the song. The majority of such performance rights goes to the composers. In this case, the songwriting team of Stock, Aiken, and Waterman. And second, a video has to run for at least 30 seconds before YouTube pays out its fraction of a cent. So how many people do you think have sat longer than 30 seconds after being Rickrolled? Oh, and remember when I said we would get back to the Foo Fighters? Have a listen to this performance in London in September 2017. And that is the second edition of what I think will probably be a regular but occasional topic here with the ongoing history of new music. If you missed the first edition of the Rock Explainer, it's available as a podcast from any platform. And if there's something about rock culture and rock history that you would like to have explained, send me an email through alan at alancross.ca. I'll put it on the list. And once I have enough things that 
I think I can explain. We'll do this again. Meanwhile, let's connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which I update every day. And there's also the free daily newsletter that you should definitely get. Start thinking up questions and get back to me, okay? Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 